Welcome to this University of Michigan Museum of Natural History podcast. On this episode, we're featuring a science cafe from November of 2017 on the continued importance of basic research. To find out about future science cafes, please visit umnh.org. Good evening, everyone. I'm standing here in the middle, and we're going to get started now. Uh, and people will continue to serve themselves food. Please help yourselves. Feel free to get up and get some more. Uh, welcome to our science cafe tonight. It's called What Cost? Basic Science. I'm Amy Harris. I'm the director of the Museum of Natural History at the University of Michigan, and we're the organizers of this Science Cafe series. I want to invite you to join me in thanking Connor O'Neill's for making this room available to us. So now I'd like to introduce Kira Berman. She's our assistant director for education, and she organizes the Science Cafe series. So uh, tonight's cafe, I'm really, really happy to introduce our speakers. Um, I see many of you have been to other cafes before, but just in case this is your first time here, I'll tell you that uh, what we do is we do some very short presentations, then we have time for discussion. You've got all sorts of really cool articles and other questions and things on your tables to help fuel your discussions, and uh, then we'll come back for a moderated uh, discussion as a large group uh, for the last half hour or so. Um, so with that, please silence your cell phones. So what cost basic research? Um, there's a lot uh, in the news uh, about funding science, and these two, I think, fantastic women have agreed to come and talk about why basic research is important. Um, so Megan Duffy is to my right, um, and she received her bachelor's in biological sciences from Cornell in 2000. She had a brief stint working as a field technician in Antarctica. Wow, that sounds fun. And she moved to the uh, Kellogg Biological Station and Michigan State University for graduate school. She received her PhD uh, in, from MSU in 2006. She joined the EEB faculty, that's Ecology and Evolutionary Biology faculty at the U of M in August uh, 2012. And her research focuses on the ecology and evolution of infectious diseases, especially in aquatic systems. In addition to her research activities, because that's not really enough, um, <clears throat> Megan writes for a popular ecology blog, Dynamic Ecology. She has received more awards than you can really shake a stick at, so I'll read some of them. Um, a Presidential Early Career Award for Scientists and Engineers from President Obama, the Mercer Award for the Ecological, from the Ecological Society of America, and the Jens Schindler Early Career Award from the Association for the Sciences of Limnology and Oceanography. She is currently a public engagement fellow with the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Her outreach activities include teaching classes to middle and high school students from Southeast Michigan, so please welcome Megan Duffy. Yay! And I'm also going to introduce um, Kristen Kutmu over here. And she graduated from the University of Colorado at Denver with a bachelor's in chemistry in 2003 under the 
guidance of Carol Fierke. Thank you. Fierke. <laughs> she earned a PhD in chemistry from the U of M in 2009. Kristen did her postdoctoral work in the, in the lab of Rachel Green at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. Um, all, these are all women scientists, all the way around, I'm noticing. Um, she joined the U of M in September 2016, where her lab answers questions about genetic information and protein synthesis. The ribosome is responsible for synthesizing proteins, and its function is cru crucial for cellular health. So research projects in the Kutmu lab seek to uncover what happens when the ribosome encounters a pro problematic RNA sequence or when the ribosome itself is dysfunctional. Her work is poised to have major impact on the field by identifying and characterizing mechanisms that disrupt translation and contribute to or might cause human disease. So please welcome Kristen Kutmu. Okay, this is where I turn the mic over. I think Megan's going to start us off. Um, so I will give you this. Okay. All right, thank you, everyone. Um, I taught for three hours this afternoon, so my brain might be... If I start talking about herbivory, just tell me to... Um, <laughs> uh, wrong talk. Switch gears. <laughs> okay. Um, so I have a pretty Daphnia up there, and you'll, or two pretty Daphnia up there, and you'll learn, um, hear much more about them today, but I wanted to start with two boring slides. So if we could go to the next slide. Okay, we're going to start with a question, right? We like to have active learning in the classroom. I'm going to model that here. So take a minute to think about what percentage of the U.S. federal budget we spend on non-defense research and development. You can talk to your neighbors. Okay, I hear various numbers going around. So let's do, let's do show of hands. Who thinks less than 2%? We don't have clickers here, so I have to do show of hands. Okay, that's most of you. 2 to 10%? Okay, most of the rest of you, 10 to 25%? I want to live in that world. Greater than 25%? I really want to live in that world. <laughs> okay, so in, in 2014... 1.6% of the U.S. annual budget went to non-defense research and development. Um, something that's interesting is there was a recent study that showed that if, the, if people know how little we spend on non-defense research and development, they favor increasing funding for it, right? So most people don't realize, they think we're already spending a good amount, so if you ask them if we should spend more, they're like, nah. But if, you, if they realize how little we're spending, they're more likely to support increased funding. Okay, and then on the next slide, um, this is a, um, a slide put out by uh, AAAS, and so it shows the, the different um, agencies that receive funding. So that red bar that's all along the, the big bar at the bottom, that's the Department of Defense, DOD. Um, and then I put an arrow over there on the right to the like tiny little piece of the pie that goes to NSF, which is the National Science Foundation. And that's notable in the context of what we're talking about tonight because NSF is what supports basic research. So that's the tiny little piece of the pie that's going to support basic research. And so basic research is research that has no obvious immediate application. Okay, so now what I want to do is shift gears from boring data slides and go to pretty Daphnia slides and pretty lake slides and instead tell you about 
basic research that we've been doing in my lab that's led to some unexpected findings um, and that might end up having direct applications. And so the take home is that a drug that might help us fight infections in people might be living below the surface of that lake right now. And this is pretty neat and not something I anticipated when we started doing this work. Okay, so if we go to the next slide, this is a Daphnia. So research in my lab focuses on Daphnia parasite interactions. Daphnia are tiny shrimp-like creatures. Um, they're very common in lakes and ponds um, throughout the world, but uh, we have tons and tons of Daphnia in our lakes here in Michigan. Um, and so some of you may have seen Daphnia maybe in a biology class at some point. It's fairly common um, that people do labs where they dump chemicals in and then they track the change in the heart rate. That's a, f a fairly common thing. But just to give you some sense of what you're looking at here, I'm going to come up front. Okay, so Daphnia, I said they're, they're these little crustaceans, right? So they're, they're small animals that live in our lakes. Um, this here is the eye. So fun factoid, they have a compound eye. It actually starts as two eyes and then fuses into one at one stage of development, which is pretty neat. Um, this is their gut here. You'll be looking at more guts later. <laughs> so that's the gut. The food comes in at this end, and then as it's digested, it turns to this golder, more gold color. Um, the feeding appendages are over here. And then all these things that you see here that some people think look like avocados, um, those are actually the developing embryos. So this is an asexual female, and those are all genetic clones of her. This is a very happy female. She has lots and lots of babies developing in her brood chamber. Okay, so that's your um, introduction to Daphnia there. So we're interested in Daphnia because they're ecologically important. They're a really key link in lake food webs. They eat algae, so they help keep the lake from looking like pea soup. And then fish eat them. So things like small bluegill sunfish feed on Daphnia. So they're this really important link in lake food webs. But we also study them because they've emerged as a model system for understanding infectious diseases. And so they have huge population sizes. Um, it's ethically okay to give them a, a virulent parasite and see what happens, right? Um, an unexpected advantage is that they're transparent, so you can actually just look at them and tell if they're infected and you don't have to like dissect things or something like that. Yes? How big are they? That's an excellent question. They are not this big. <laughs> So I, so what I used to say is they're in the size range that I can see and my parents can't see them, and now I'm getting old enough that I might have to shift this to they're getting a little hard for me to see and my kids can see them. So they're sort of in the, um, for the species that live around here, the really big ones are maybe two millimeter, millimeters long. Um, so they're pretty tiny, but they are visible with the naked eye. Okay. Um, so one of the things we've been doing as we, as we look at host parasite interactions is we've been, one of the questions we've been interested in is how does the diet that a host eats influence how sick they get or what the outcome of disease is. So we've done some work on this um, over the years. So if you go to the next slide now. But um, we started doing even more on this when my student Crystal um, joined my lab. So I thought I would need to show you a picture of Crystal. Here we are with some other guy. Um, last year, but Crystal's right over there too, so Crystal can wave. <laughs> so Crystal joined my lab a couple of years ago, and she's really interested, she was interested in this question of how the diet 
adaphnia consumes, and especially how the, the different compounds that different phytoplankton, so cyanobacteria and algae, what they produce, how that might influence disease. So if you go to the next slide, what Crystal did is she grew up a bunch of different types of um, algae in the lab, and she fed them to Daphnia, and then she exposed them to parasites. And so I don't know how well you can see this, but the, this is a, a sort of pretty solid green, whereas this is a blue-green color. So these are two Daphnia that fed on different foods. It's notable that this Daphnia is a little smaller. They're the same age. What's also notable, notable is that this one looks kind of gray, and that gray is the parasite growing inside of her. So the animals that fed on certain kinds of food were much more likely to get infected. And then on the next slide, I have another um, pairing of them. I like taking pictures of Daphnia, so I think they're beautiful, and most people don't realize how pretty they are. Um, so this is another one where the guts are different colors. It's not showing up fantastically in this light. Um, and then this one is smaller, and she only has one baby developing there, but she's not infected. Whereas this one's bigger, she has a bunch of babies in there, but she's also going to die from this parasite, so trade-offs. <laughs> um, and so Crystal's results were really striking. She found very strong impacts of the algal diet that we fed on whether animals got infected with a common fungal parasite. So we went into this thinking there might be some effect, but I certainly didn't expect the effect to be as strong as it was, so we found some of the algal diets just completely prevented infections by the fungal parasite, which again was not really what, what I had expected um, to see. So if you go to the next slide, so here's Crystal with all her chemostats in the lab. And um, so what she's been doing has, is she's now working with extracts from these um, algal chemostats and testing them actually against human pathogens. And she'll also do some work looking um, at their effect against agricultural pathogens. Okay, so now I'm going to shift to talking a little bit about fungal infections. So if you go to the next slide. So every year, 1.5 million people die from fungal infections, which is three times the number of people who die from breast cancer. So most people don't really think about fungal infections. There's something where if you're generally healthy, they're mostly nuisance infections like athlete's foot or something like that. But for people who, have, who are um, immunocompromised, if they have HIV or cancer or cystic fibrosis or something like that, they can cause extremely serious infections. They also cause problems for people who've had surgery, like for example, open heart surgery, because fungal spores can be in the air and they can colonize um, someone during surgery. So 40% of hospital bloodstream infections are caused by one type of uh, fungus, in the genus Candida, right? So this is, fungal diseases are really important even though we mostly um, don't think about them. And then on the next slide, I have a picture um, of corn that's been attacked by a fungal disease. So more than two-thirds of all crop diseases worldwide are due to fungal diseases. So they're very important agricultural pathogens. And then on the next slide, I have some dead frogs. So um, there's a chytrid fungus that's spread through amphibians globally, and it's really decimated their populations. There's also been a fungal pathogen that's um, heavily impacted bat populations, and there's generally a sense that fungal diseases are on the rise, maybe because of global change, but no one's, no one's exactly sure yet. Um, okay, so one problem is that we have very few antifungal drugs. So hopefully, I, hopefully I've convinced you that um, fungal diseases are important economically for people, um, 
for conservation. But we have very few antifungals. So, the, so it's similar to the case with antibiotics, right, where we, we have some, but there's resistance that's, arise, that's evolving, um, and we're losing them. With, with fungal diseases, we have even fewer antifungals than we have antibiotics. So we're starting from a smaller number, and some of the ones that we have have extremely strong toxic effects, so they're only used if, like, the person would die otherwise. Like, they're, they're like, marginally medicinal <laughs> for some of these drugs. So we really, really need more antifungal medicines. So um, Crystal is, again, on the next slide. So she took some of her extracts off to a collaborator's lab where she tested some of her compounds against um, fungal pathogens of humans, and hot off the presses data suggests that they are active against human fungal pathogens, including a fungal pathogen strain that is resistant to other antifungals. So this is like not where I saw my research going when we started this. We were like, what's driving these disease outbreaks in lakes, which is, I thought was an interesting question, but we were not setting out to look for novel antifungals. And so now um, what Crystal is going to do is we're collaborating with a medicinal chemist, and she's going to go and, and screen these compounds against a whole suite of different human and agricultural pathogens. So on the next slide, yeah. So um, I told part of this story at the March for Science in DC last fall. Um, that was before we had the results uh, from the screen against the human pathogens. But at the beginning of the talk, I noted that my father is a retired New York City firefighter. And when I talked to him about my work, he always says, but how is this going to help people? And he wants a direct application to humans. And I've tended to be like, eh, probably not. <laughs> like, you know, I couldn't really come up with something that seemed direct enough for him. But now it seems like well, maybe I was wrong, right? So it might be that in these lakes where he's like, why are you rowing a boat? Like, what are you doing out there, right? But an, a novel antifungal that might help us fight fungal diseases in humans or in agriculture might be below the surface of that lake. And so to me, this is, um, this is exactly how b basic research works, where you work on one topic that seemingly has no direct relevance to humans, you can suddenly have this unexpected breakthrough where you realize that what you're working on actually does have an important application. So that's my story about how the basic research we were doing in my lab has ended up being applied research. <laughs> um, and so with that, I think I'll turn over the mic to Kristen. Okay, so we all just heard a fantastic story from Professor Duffy about how basic science can lead you in directions that you absolutely never expected to go. I'm going to take a little bit of a different take on the question why we should fund basic science. And I'm going to tell you why I love basic science, why I'm passionate about basic science. And I also want to talk about who funds basic science and maybe lead to a discussion about who should be funding basic science. First, I want to start by defining what is basic science. Basic scientists are interested in discovering how the world works. We really just fundamentally want to know how stuff goes together. Basic science is curiosity-driven, and it is an incredibly creative endeavor. So for example, in my lab, I work on the ribosome, which is the protein-making machinery in the cell. I could make up some applications um, for my research, and I could tell you we're going to solve human disease and all sorts of things. 
But really, I just work on the ribosome because I'm a nerd, and I think it's incredibly cool how proteins get made. I'm interested in the molecular level details of how proteins get made. That is basic science. Applied science, on the other hand, is a type of science where we use scientific knowledge and known scientific techniques to try to answer a fundamental problem, right? So you're trying to do something where you have a goal in mind at the end, which is fantastic. That gives us things like pharmaceuticals and new products and new batteries for cars and all of the important things that we need. So why should we fund basic science? Why should we fund these crazy scientists who are just sitting around in lab dreaming up new ideas and going to test them, right? We don't fund other, science, we don't fund other creative endeavors like artists uh, to the same level. So why should we fund scientists being creative in the same sort of way? I think the fundamental reason that we should is because this is how you get innovation. There is a big innovation payoff from scientists being creative. I'm going to give you some examples um, beyond the examples that Professor Duffy just supplied of ways in which this has happened in the past. The first thing I'm going to talk about is CRISPR. This is something some of you may have heard of before. It's this brand new, it's not brand new now, but this really fundamentally important uh, genome editing technology that has come to light in the past, I don't know, five to ten years. This is going to enable us as humans to edit our genome. This is something we will definitely see for good or bad in our, in our lifetime without question. And all of the CRISPR technology that has come out for genome editing has come from fundamental studies of the molecular basis of how bacteria fight infections against viruses, right? Nobody set out looking for a genome editing tool. They set out wondering, hmm, I wonder how bacteria fight off viruses. This is basic science. How many of you in this lab here have ever had an MRI? MRI, again, comes absolutely out of basic science. Um, the technology that is used in your MRI came out of chemists who wondered how nucleus spins in a magnetic field. Definitely were not looking for a way to image human body parts, right? That is basic science. Basic science is important because we don't know what we don't know. Um, and basic science gives us the link to be able to figure out what that might be, to at least propose what that might be. But as a society, how do we place a monetary value on basic science, right? So who's currently funding science and where is that money going? Is it going to applied science? Is it going to basic science? Where is the money that we currently invest in coming up with these new ideas going? So what I have shown here is the science that the, you as the U.S. taxpayer is currently funding. So as you can see, about 45% of the science that we fund actually goes directly to the Department of Defense. The sort of science that the DOD does, as you can imagine, is not particularly basic. It tends to be quite applied and they want some very specific um, products to be made. The next largest chunk of scientific funding goes to National Institutes of Health. And then the piece of the pie that's left, that's about 25% of science that uh, U.S. government funds, gets divvied up into all of the other agencies that we think of as kind of hardcore basic science, right? NASA, Department of Energy, National Science Foundation. And if you were to break this down further and we were to say only take the piece of the pie that's non-defense spending, right? that, I think you said it was 1.6% of the U.S. budget, 1.4%. 
and you were to divide it even further down, the piece of the pie of that 1.4% that belongs in the basic science category, not in the applied science category, is less than 1%. It's less than 50% of that 1.4%, right? So it's actually a very small amount of money that we're currently spending um, on basic science. Next slide, please. And scientists in my field and in basic science fields um, are generally saying that that money is getting even harder to come by. So the Pew Institute recently took a poll of scientists and 83% of scientists said that federal funding is more difficult to acquire today than it has been in the past. 83%. That's, a, that's an overwhelmingly large number. So you might ask yourself, well, are these scientists just a bunch of whiners, right? Are they just saying, oh, we wish things could be like they were before? Um, no, they're actually right. Money is harder to come by today. So what I have shown here is a plot showing that available funding for NIH, uh, which is the funding body that I ask for funding from primarily, so if, I want you to pay attention not to the top um, line, but to the bottom, which is the inflation-adjusted budget for the NIH. And you'll see that right now, here in 2017, we're at almost the lowest levels of funding that we've been since 1995. And what this means is that NIH grants are much, much harder to get. The next slide will slow, show that. So here I've plotted the fraction of NIH proposals funded as a function of year. And what this demonstrates is that in the 1970s, about 40% of the proposals that one would send to NIH would be funded. Okay? Great. Now that number is under 20%, which is pretty significant. And this has consequences beyond simply how much a particular scientist is allowed to spend in their lab. Right? Those consequences include things like it's much harder for young people like me to get money because when you have a smaller pool of money to be distributed, you want to put it on your sure bet, right? You want to put it on those established people who you know should pay off. Also, uh, many studies have shown that the ideas that get funded when funding is lean, as it is now, tend to be less innovative because people don't put forward their most pie-in-the-sky, crazy, barrier-breaking sort of ideas um, when funding is lean. They put forward their conservative ideas, things they know are a sure bet and the things they know are going to be funded and be successful. So NIH grants being two times harder to get now than they were in the 70s has definite implications for, for innovation in science. Next slide, please. So, who is funding science? The United States is still the largest funder of science in the world. Um, however, China is quickly, quickly catching up. So, what I have shown here is U.S. dollars in billions, so this is not inflation adjusted, just U.S., how much money the U.S. has put into science um, every five years since the year 2000. And you'll see we've put a lot, of, a lot of money into science, right? Even though it's a small portion of our budget, it's still a lot in total dollars. China is quickly catching up to us, right? So they used to be, in the year 2000, just 17 short years ago, they would spend about 10% of what we spend now, and now they spend over 70%. So if we want to continue to be the leaders in innovation in the world, um, we need to think about what we're doing with our scientific funding. 
because dollars actually do create more dollars. Dollars spent on research funding creates more dollars. So uh, Francis Collins, the head of the NIH, estimates that for every $1 in external funding the NIH spends, it generates $2.21, so more than twice um, the amount that they've put in in economic output. Large-scale projects, like, does anybody here remember the Human Genome Project, right? That was a really big deal, and the government spent a lot of money on it. Um, for every $1 the government spent on the Human Genome Project, $178 were generated in economic output with a total of $1 trillion. And that is for some very basic science. Just counting the A's and T's and C's and G's in the genome is about as basic, basic science as you can get, right? Nobody was setting out to solve diseases. We were setting out just to create a map. Um, and it's created an incredible amount of, it's created an entire new field, an entire new economy. It's, it's amazing. Next slide, please. Um, so does investing in science, beyond the numbers I gave you, pay off in terms of scientific productivity, right? An argument could be made that, you know, maybe scientists are wasteful, maybe we're spending our money on really expensive computers and we could be using cheaper computers and we should be funded less because we're just wasteful, wasteful scientists. Um, but it does, in fact, pay off in terms of the amount of scientific output. So what I have shown here is the proportion of top-tier and mid-tier journals, so basically legitimate journals uh, with legitimate research articles that had research articles that were published by scientists based in the United States. So this is the percent of the total journal publications um, that, came, that were produced by U.S. scientists. As you can see, since the year 2000, um, the U.S.'s share of the top and mid-tier journals has been declining. Next slide, please. China, on the other hand, has had the opposite uh, trend happening, where they are just exploding onto the world scene in terms of their publication output. So there's been a shift in basic science funding in the United States. There's been a trend um, for limiting basic science funding, and where the money for basic science comes from has been changing in the U.S. as well. We need to decide as a society how much money we want to spend on basic science and what we, what we want that to look like. Um, so what I have shown here is a graph where, where on the y-axis you have billions of U.S. dollars and on the x-axis you have years. And as you can see, in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, most basic science was funded by the government. This has changed as of 2015 more than 50% of the basic science funding no longer comes from the government. It now comes from a combination of corporations, philanthropy, and university money. So what the question that I want to open up is, is this a good thing? Um, there are some really positive things about basic science in some forms being funded by corporations. You can think of things like um, a, a study that's happening here in Ann Arbor where Toyota is collaborating with university to test safety in cars. You can see that as a really positive thing. But it's not always uh, a positive relationship. There are definitely many situations in which scientists are asked to write, to sign non-disclosure agreements before beginning a study so they can't tell anybody what the results of their study are. You could imagine that could hamper science, which really relies on the free flow 
of ideas. And it can also, I would argue, hamper scientific creativity because when you're concerned that your funding's coming from a company, you need to be producing something that's interesting to that company as opposed to being able to write a federal grant where you can produce something that is just interesting. Um, and I think that's it. Thank you. Okay, so this is a great time for you guys to think about what you learned. There's some awesome uh, sources of information on your tables and some discussion questions. Um, it's a great time to get with your wait staff and uh, top off your drinks. Um, so they'll be coming in in just a minute. Make sure you take care of them. Um, and uh, we'll come together for uh, a large group discussion uh, in a little bit. But this is, this is your time to talk with each other. Thank you. Thank you both. That was wonderful. Okay, this is the part I don't like because I'm interrupting you. And I know you're having great conversations, but I'd like to bring those conversations um, into the broader group. Thank you. So um, we'll now have a sort of larger format discussion um, so we can, we can all discuss together. And I have another microphone for you guys over here, so you're all set. Um, I did ask them to bring more crackers because we had all sorts of cheese left over, but we ran out of crackers. So if you've been waiting for that, this is your chance. Um, so um, I agreed that I would moderate this group discussion, which means that I will let um, you know if you're talking. Um, I'll let you know if you have the floor or if you don't. Um, I'm going to pass this cordless mic. I'm going to ask you to use it, not only so that everybody in the room can hear you, but because we record this part of the conversation for later podcast. So um, uh, be careful what you say, I guess. Um, and um, please look at me to be recognized, even though I am not a working scientist. Um, so um, please limit your questions uh, to 30 seconds to a minute or comments so that lots of people can participate in our conversation. Um, I may interrupt you if you go on forever. Um, likewise, I'm, I'll give a preference to people who haven't spoken yet just to diversify all the voices that we hear. And I always hope this part of the program will feel a little bit more like a group chat or discussion than just a Q&A. So you don't have to ask a question. You could have a comment or an anecdote or something that you want to tell us about. There's a lot of expertise and experience in the room. Please feel free to share. Um, oh, oh, yeah. We like to foster open discussion and honest debate, um, even when we talk about issues that are sometimes touchy. Um, so please be nice to each other or else. Um, and um, if you forget to turn off your cell phone and it rings during this portion of the program, I don't have funding to do a study on what will happen, but I'd rather not find out. Um, so um, with that, does anybody have a comment or question or thought that they would like to start us out uh, my question has to do with the sources of fundings, uh, such as uh, is in the pie chart, figure two, and I'm directing this at the two experts at the front of the room. Uh, I'm curious, 
has the Department of Defense is listed as 45%. Is that a larger percentage of total research dollars than, say, was the case 10 or 20 years ago? Is that constant? Uh, is the DOD gobbling up a larger share, or is that not the case? Or are other sections, uh, I was surprised to see the NIH is at 28%. Is that appreciably larger than it used to be? So I don't know about the, the DOD, but Megan said that's on your slide. And I, but I know that famously NIH and NSF go back and forth where they say they rob Peter to pay Paul. And the, the, the percentages between those two agencies in particular is notoriously uh, back and forth depending on the whims of Congress. This shows the data over time. So the, the let's see, I have to get closer because I'm now in the age range where I can't see Daphne. Um, so... The 1976 is over here, and then 2017 is over here, and I'm not left-handed, so I'm going to switch this. Um, and so this bottom, these red ones are DOD. So to me, that looks like the DOD percent, well, it looks like it went up in the 80s in terms of a percentage, but overall, I would say it looks like the overall percentage seems kind of consistent to me. So I was just going to add that um, at least one of the values I see out of the basic science uh, funding is not necessarily that any given scientist is going to discover anything new or unique, but that you've trained that person and, um, you know, as an, I think, an investment in the country, we have people with high caliber scientific abilities uh, working together, and just the synergy among them is going to. Uh, enable new discoveries, even if any individual can't say, well, I can put my name on that one. Another comment. In our table discussion, we talked a lot about the um, advantages that come other than just the science, and one of them was the, um, the, the trained scientists that you know, will be working in the field or in a field for 50 years, and the problems they're dealing with 50 years later have nothing to do potentially with what they started out in, but they have that process and that discipline. Um, I think we also talked about how um, basic research encourages a much more open mind. Um, as as uh, we already everybody already has a bias, so you're looking for a result. But if you're not looking specifically for a result that a corporation has funded, you're much more open to whatever results you see without forcing them into um, a framework that's already been predefined. Yeah, and I think related to that, um, so I have a lot of undergraduates who work in my lab, and they get trained in this process of how to critically evaluate information, how to draw a conclusion from it. And then they go on to all sorts of other careers. Most of them don't go on to continue to be a research scientist. Um, but they've, they've gained what I think is a lot of really valuable training, um, often supported you know, on federal funding while they do that work. I'm just going to add one thing, and then I'll, I'll hand the mic back over to you, Don. Um, but uh, this kind of program that you guys are doing right now is one of the things that NSF funds because for every time that there's a basic research grant through the National Science Foundation, they have a category called broader impacts, which means that scientists have to communicate what they're doing either through training students or through getting the word out to the public or to K-12 uh, groups. So off, very often we have um, 
grants that f help fund or make possible science cafes, grants that f help fund or make possible what the Museum of Natural History does, so the programs that you come to, lectures, exhibits, etc., cetera, uh, might also be some of the things that are part of, part and parcel of that research funding. Is this one? Okay, I guess I, got, I had a comment. Um, so I was talking with my NSF program officer at a conference this past summer, and he said he was talking with the, NS, the head of NSF after they'd come back from meeting with Congress. And they said that um, sometimes it's hard for basic scientists to communicate to the public, and that it's hard for them to go and talk to kids, and a lot of people are uncomfortable doing it. Um, and, but he said for this program officer to tell everybody that he interacts with that that is the one reason the doors of NSF are kept open. That is the reason that Congress continues to fund science is because we continue to do outreach. Not because Congress is particularly interested in basic science, but that scientists in general should be aware that the reason that they're getting grants is because they're agreeing to communicate with the public about it. Uh, I was interested to see the uh, line graph of the increase in corporate uh, sponsorship of research uh, in, in comparison to the federal. I'm curious, is there a fundamental difference in uh, intellectual property uh, law and issues between the two uh, institutions? Uh, in, in other words, is uh, basic research and the data and information that comes from it more accessible and available to the general public or to people who would want to use it than it would be if it was sponsored and paid for by corporate entities? Yeah, that is, that's an excellent question. So um, NSF requires, as part of my funding, that I make my, um, like the, the genotypes I work with and my materials and my methods available to other people who want them. We publish our data and our code when we publish papers. Um, you mentioned, right, the, the, with corporate or with research that that's supported by other groups i guess were you you were saying philanthropies versus corporations or so, i guess they right so there there are definitely different um so philanthropies usually okay yeah philanthropies are they, they, they're just as open as government funds okay so yeah, so corporate, um, I went to a job talk by someone that was a fairly, it wasn't here, it was a fairly awkward job talk because the person got to the results section and said, this is where my results would be, but they're, I'm not allowed to give them because the company that had funded her research wouldn't allow her, had decided they didn't want the results released, at least not yet. And so it was like okay, what do we do now? And then she went on to a discussion. <laughs> you know, it's sort of like the, there was no data in her talk because um, the, the corporation that funded it had decided she could not talk about it publicly. Um, so in response to the question that was proposed earlier, we, we proposed a similar question among our table about the rise of corporate funding and the privacy and the limitations that that entails in contrast to federal funding. And just an example that we discussed was um, in Silicon Valley, there's a lot of bio, like small biotech companies that are corporately funded and are not allowed to share any of their data. And for something as universal as cancer research, all these different biotech companies are having all these different discoveries that they cannot share. They're limited to share because of the corporate interests and all the monetary interests. But if, they, if that was rescinded, which would never really happen anymore, but if that was, the cure to cancer probably would have been discovered 10 plus years ago. 
but the lack of discussion among the scientific community now because of the corporate funding is very limiting and it's just interesting to see as that continues to grow. Oh, I guess I wanted to make a comment also about um, corporate funding in an academic setting. So I think it's a really powerful thing and it can do corporate university partnerships can be really positive. It's not all negative. We shouldn't paint it all black, right? Not all corporates are big. Not all corporations are big, evil entities. Um, however, I do think as a scientist, it can limit your scientific imagination, right? So let's say that I got funding from Toyota. That means that I'm going to use all of my scientific imagination to think about things that can benefit Toyota. And I'm not going to do the typical basic science thing, which is to just dream up anything I can think of um, and find interesting. So I think it, it has the potential not only uh, to be harmful because of IP issues, but also because it can limit our, we're putting limits on our scientific imagination. So a lot of the discussion has focused around, you know, motivating or justifying basic science research by potential applications and outcomes that, you know, applied science. And, um, but one of the things that, you know, I'm an electrical engineer and physicist, and I could really relate to you know, I love basic science based on you know, the, the creativity and the exploration side and the ways in which I think those fundamentally enrich humanity and are you know, what me, you know, the meaning of life. And um, I guess I'm wondering to what extent do you think the lack of, I guess, funding in sciences is related to like the lack of interest in science versus a more broad I guess, perspective of whether or not as a society we value exploration in terms of humanity and creativity and the ways in which an abstract sense that that is valuable and whether or not you know, we could be more effective as a scientific community in terms of advocacy and lobbying and PR if we engaged more with other creative disciplines and the humanities to kind of advocate for the fundamental value of creativity and human enrichment. So I think that you're right in that people don't fundamentally, the average person on the street does not see science as a creative endeavor, right? They see us all as weird people working silently in our lab. And I guess I just wanted to give an antidote as to how per per pervasive this is. So I'm teaching an undergraduate course this semester, which doesn't sound exciting to any of you, probably. It's called um, Topics in Nucleic Acids. But we, I've been talking a lot about how science is a creative endeavor. And I had senior level students come up to me after the second week of class and say, wow, this is the first time I've ever realized that science is a creative endeavor. These are seniors at the U of M majoring in science who had never thought about science, is this true guys, as a creative endeavor. <laughs> and if we can't convince seniors at the U of M that that's the case, what does the general population think? So I think you make a very good point. Hello. Um, another, another thing that we talked about in the class, hi guys, um, another thing that we talked about was um, ways that you can kind of infiltrate society to teach them about the importance of basic science. And we did speak about the importance of um, having that be a main focus in primary education as opposed to just in, you know, our research schools like U of M. It's, we should have learned about these things earlier on in our education as opposed to once we get to college. Um, so what are ways that you think that we can reach out to younger generations, you know, the next generation of scientists and policymakers and um, just the next generation 
how do you how do we teach them the importance of basic science? Um, you just made Kira so happy. <laughs> I think jump up and down. <laughs> Um, so definitely there are a lot of opportunities th through working with schools or with school groups, right? And so there, fortunately here at Michigan, there are some really great programs that already do that. Like there's a program, FEMS, that um, does outreach to girls in fourth through sixth grade, and there, there are various programs like that. I think there are also a lot of opportunities for more informal interactions, and we've been trying to think more in my lab about um, how, to ha how to foster some of those. And one, um, one idea came from, so one of my postdocs was doing an experiment where she, um, she was incubating things out in a lake, and someone ran over her experiment with his boat and, and called her and was very nice, and she drove over, and he had a new float and helped her put her experiment back together. And then they started talking about lakes. And then he like is, has a lake homeowner association. He's part of a lake homeowner association. And then he was going to invite her to write for their newsletter. And I think like there, there are probably, um, there are more opportunities for these informal conversations than we might necessarily think of. And I, um, you know, I definitely, if I'm talking to someone, I tend to sort of downplay some of my work, but I, you know, I could do more to be like, hey, you know, there's this really cool, do you know there are these beautiful things that live in lakes? Let me show you a picture, right? So I told Kira last week I'm a Daphnia evangelist. I told you I would quote you on that. <laughs> right, so I, th I think we could do a lot more with our just like in the day-to-day -day interactions to try to convey more of the like sense of discovery and wonder um, I teach intro bio, so I'm teaching a lot of freshmen. And one of the things I do try to convey is, like, this is exciting and cool. Like, oh, my God, they found this cave with 1,500 hominin fossils. Whoa. <laughs> you know, like, try to get some of that across to the students. It's so important. I, I'm reminded by what you're saying uh, of uh, a woman who worked with, who worked with me on an exhibit one time and is now director of another museum at, a, at another college. And uh, she worked with me about 15 years ago, right about when NSF was first starting to require broader impacts or, or education funding. And she said, you know, she came back, and she came back on a day when we had our science communication fellows, our scientists out on the floor talking with the public, and we had another group called Living Labs talking with the public. So we had all these researchers, like 20 of them, out in the museum talking to the public. And then one of our curators walked through with a group of kids, and, and he was giving a tour. Uh, and she said, you know, all these people that you've worked with over the years... Um, really, those, those people now started as graduate students doing public outreach as well as research, and now it's just part of what we do. We don't think twice about it. Whereas in previous generations, scientists, that was like the extra thing to do public outreach. So thank you both for all the public outreach you do, including tonight. Thank you very much.